Hello and welcome. I am Ashwin Ahmed and I'm very pleased to be in conversation with Kabir Taneja, fellow at the ORF and an expert on West Asia. Today we are going to be discussing just how a Taliban government is likely to impact the Middle East. More importantly, are we likely to see the resurgence of ISIS and Al-Qaeda in South Asia? If so, how will this impact India? Kabir, first off, a very warm welcome to you. Thank you so much. So Kabir, let's start with the basics. How do you think a Taliban government is likely to impact the Middle East, specific regard to Saudi Arabia and Iran? Um, see, that's a really good question. They both have taken, I think, very different approaches to what's happening in Afghanistan. Let's begin with Iran, because they do share a large border with Afghanistan. And over the past couple of months, we have seen, you know, the Iranians dealing with, with the Taliban in a very realistic manner, right? They sort of saw that whatever the dispensation was in Kabul and whatever the West and NATO were doing in Afghanistan was not going to be enough to stem the rise of the Taliban. So, uh, you know, they already had uh, relations with, with the Taliban over the past couple of years. So they started to cement them a little bit more, specifically around the Shia Hazara community. And, uh, you know, as long as the, the Taliban was not going to be hampering any strategic interests of Iran. I think the Iranians were okay with it. You also have to remember after the Quds Force chief Soleimani was killed in Iraq, the person who came next uh, had a very wide experience in Afghanistan. So he was mostly in Afghanistan hand. So they knew what they were going to have to deal with in the next, uh, if not years, at least a couple of months. So, you know, Iran is dealing it from, from that perspective. They have an outreach to the Taliban. We know that they had given refuge to certain Al-Qaeda figures as well. So there is a sense of realism in Iran's approach. And more than anything else, I think Tehran is just happy to see the US leave one of its borders, which, you know, gives it much more wiggle room, much more freedom to approach Afghanistan according to its own wills and fancies. So that's what I think Iran is doing at the moment. And Saudi Arabia has been much more aloof, I think, compared to what they were in the 90s. Of course, Saudi, along with the UAE and Pakistan, were the only three countries that had recognized the old Taliban regime in 1996 when they came to power. But this time, we've seen them be fairly hands-off. And I think that is because the certain direction that Mohammed bin Salman, who's the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, is adamant to take uh, Saudi Arabia towards. And it's not been easy for him, right? So there are lots of challenges. There are a lot of economic challenges. COVID-19 has been a big setback to his uh, plans of uh, economic liberalization of Saudi Arabia. And the economic liberalization, of course, comes with a lot of pushback from within. He has to deal with the House of Saud itself, which is a smorgasbord of interests and conflicts, and of course, the general sort of conservative classes in Saudi Arabia. So I think he's very busy with that and does not want to wade in too much into something happening miles and miles away. But uh, one interesting thing that happened yesterday, for example, was that uh, Ahmad Shah Massoud, uh, Massoud's son, Ahmad Massoud, who's sort of the figurehead of a resistance to the Taliban in Panjshir, in Afghanistan, gave an interview to Al Arabiya, which is a Saudi uh, news outlet, only because the Taliban, I think, have been given interviews left, right, and center to Al Jazeera, which is a Qatari news outlet. And from what I took from that interview was that the Saudis want some sort of solution to come through. They don't want the conflict to go on. And I don't think they are too worried about a Taliban government, so to speak. I think they, at some level, have agreed to the notion that they have changed a little bit or they're not going to be as brutal as they used to be in the 90s. So Saudi has distanced itself, but also said, you know, don't 
continue the conflict, try to bring in peace and stability, however it is, even if it's Taliban, let them do so. And they are largely concentrating on their own sort of uh, challenges at home and in the region itself. They're not trying to put finger into an already burning fire. Maybe you summed it up well, but I'll just point out that Iran has a force to take care of the Hazaras. The force has come back from Syria. Now there's a lot of pressure within Iran that they must do something about the Hazaras. The Taliban, even though there is an outreach at the moment that, you know, we should not touch our Shia, Shia brothers. At the same time, don't you feel that, you know, the Shia-Sunni divide will continue to be a problem? And uh, if so, do we see a violent fallout? I think it is going to be a problem. Uh, a lot of us people trying to follow what's happening in Afghanistan are falling into the PR traps of what the Taliban is saying. You have to remember, since the Taliban has taken over Kabul, everything that they have been saying is from Kabul. We don't know what's happening in Mazar-e-Sharif. We don't know what's happening in Herat. And we don't know what's happening in Kandahar. So there's very tight control of information. Initially, you know, the Taliban released images showing that, uh, they, you know, they are letting uh, Ashura celebrations happen in parts of uh, Shia majority parts of Afghanistan, that they are giving protection, they are giving the policing uh, 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 for the safety of the Shias and so on and so forth. But there are, on the other hand, there are videos of Shias being also killed, being hit. Uh, because they are not sort of pandering to what the Taliban are saying. So I think there's a double-edged sword at the moment. A lot of information control is hampering what the realities are on the ground. But you are correct in saying uh, that there is going to be continuous tension between the Taliban and uh, and the Shia community in Afghanistan. And let's remember, the uh, Taliban that we are used to listening to in Qatar is not fully representative ideologically of what the Taliban is. They are representative of what they are marketing and offering to the world. And the world is ready to consume it because they want to get out of Afghanistan. So, you know, but beyond that, what happens, I think, which I've saying, been saying for a while now, let's wait a couple of months, maybe two, three months, and I think the picture will be much more clear then. Yabi, now let's move to terrorism. US NSA, Jake Sullivan says the threat of ISIS is real. They panicked about getting out the, of the US troops, citizens, etc. out of Afghanistan because of that. But at the same time, the Taliban has fought the ISIS in the past. So uh, how do you see this? Do you see an accommodation between the terror groups, ISIS, Al-Qaeda and uh, the Taliban? Or do you see internal conflicts between them continuing? Look, I think the conflict is going to continue at some level. Now, what that level is going to be is yet to sort of play out. We haven't heard from the Islamic State Khorasan province for a while now since the Taliban juggernaut started. Earlier, if you remember, in 2016, 17 and 18, we often used to hear ISIS Khorasan taking claims for attacks in Kabul, you know, which everyone was very perplexed because for an organization which is sort of on the peripheries of insurgency and terrorism in Afghanistan, the capacity to actually do something which is largely in control of the Taliban and, you know, attempt attacks inside Kabul was quite curious to a lot of people uh, that how are they managed to imagine to do that. And a lot of people, of course, also said that, you know, it's, it's false flag. It's actually the Taliban or the Haqqanis who are actually doing it because they want to create this idea that, you know, the look look at the reach of the ISKP and the, this is something that we can help the Americans with. And that narrative, as you and me know, that, that went a long way. You know, we had long articles in American press saying this. Uh, we had American politicians and generals saying that. 
So that that was sort of, you know, they tried to make it as a point of convergence between the US and the Taliban that, you know, the Taliban may help us to actually eradicate the Islamic State Khorasan group. But since then, we haven't heard anything. Of course, we heard of the Taliban, uh, you know, shooting and killing ISKP leaders that were in prison. As per some reports on the ground from prisons, more in, in the provinces rather than the capital, they also released a lot of ISKP. And that begs the question that why would you do that? If they are your mortal enemy, if they are your ideological enemies, there is absolutely no reason for why you would let, let them go and try to regroup at a certain point later. And finally, you know, ISIS has been saying a lot of things online uh, in their sort of propaganda materials uh, as far as Afghanistan goes. They've been saying that the Taliban is basically an uh, American propped regime, as ironical as that sounds you know, that it's not a really an Islamic government or an Islamic country because they came to power with the help of the Americans. But beyond that, you know, if you see a more see it from a more kinetic point of view, I think they have only conducted one or two attacks against the Taliban. One was in Peshawar in Pakistan and not even in Afghanistan. Since then, we haven't seen much of what has happened. Of course, you can argue that the American airstrikes in certain sort of provinces in Afghanistan where ISKP actually was a strong force may have deteriorated their capacities, which is fully plausible. But if the fighters were still around, if the fighters were still committed to the ISKP, we would have seen, you know, at least some sort of attacks being propagated when the Taliban was running amok in all of the provinces. I think the last major sort of attacks we heard was in Jalalabad against the, if I remember, it was against the Sikh community or something. But uh, but beyond that, we haven't heard anything. So I think it's, um, I mean, Jake Sullivan even said it today. So I'm not really sure what the intel is or what they are sort of trying to highlight. But if you see it from a very, I mean, what's visible on the ground, I don't see that being a major threat at the moment. It could become one in the future. I don't know. But at the moment, I really don't see it. Let's now move to India. We've had reports in the past, we were discussing this, of Kerala's Mapila Muslims going to join Afghanistan in Syria. And then Afghanistan was the, what I call the halfway point. Now with the Taliban government in power, where is that likely to escalate? What are the implications for India if it, that does happen? Look, I I mean, if it's going to escalate or not, it's really difficult to crystal gaze into that because these are very, I mean, you know, predicting things in uh, terrorism and counterterrorism studies is always a very, uh, you know, nice edge kind of thing to do. But, you know, one thing that I will say is that, you know, the radicalization that took place in Kerala was much, much more different to what kind of radicalization we're used to hearing from Kashmir and other places, right? A lot of these guys who wanted to travel to Syria or Iraq or even Afghanistan with some did, they were willing to travel for the idea of the Islamic State, right? So they wanted to live in the geography in a safe environment, not fight, but wanted to live under the ideation of Islamic State's view of the Sharia. That was the pull, right? And, and a lot of people did also fight because once you reach there, you really don't have any options to argue your way out. But I don't see whenever, like, for example, when the caliphate collapsed in Syria and Iraq, well, quote unquote collapsed, we, we haven't seen many people from India trying to join the ISIS now. Because the group and the ideology is fine, but it was always a question of geography, that they wanted to live in an Islamic state which is run by Sharia, but which is a quasi-country or a country where they can live, right? So they didn't want to harm anyone else. They really didn't want to, beyond a point, conduct attacks in India, for example. None of these guys wanted to conduct attacks in India. They wanted to go. 
somewhere. And it's not for the lack of trying. Islamic State did try, did tell them, you, you know, you will be part of us if you actually go and conduct attacks against Indians. Barely had any uh, lone wolf attacks or any of this sort of thing happening. Yeah, so I think, you know, the threat perception is not that grave, in my opinion, as when it comes to radicalization in Kerala specifically. That's a good point you made. Now let's come to what India is doing. We issued a statement at the UNSC recently. We asked the Taliban to cut ties with ISIS and Al-Qaeda. That's possibly not likely to happen. But what I'm more interested in is Qatar talking about reportedly mediating talks, and I say reportedly because New Delhi hasn't confirmed it, between India and the Taliban. So two questions for you here. Why is Qatar doing this? And uh, number two, what do we really have in common with a group in which uh, factions of its members are ISI and Pakistan trained? See, I mean, look, why is Qatar doing it is has multiple reasons. But most of the reasons actually reside in two, two points. First is the intra-rivalries within the Gulf. Where Qatar, you know, a lot of people always say Qatar is used to punching above its weight. You have to remember what happened with the... Uh, Qatar in, in Syria, between the, the Saudi Arabia, UAE and Qatar, that the, the Emiratis were like, well, you're punching much beyond your weight, supporting certain factions in northern Syria that they were not, well, quote-unquote, not supposed to, according to the GCC, at least. And that didn't go down well. You know, there was a three-year blockade against them, which they survived fairly well. And, uh, you know, they sort of proved that there is a level of autonomy and sovereignty of foreign policy that they are going to maintain. And once they saw that the UAE and the Saudis are not that interested, Afghanistan was something I think they were willing to touch while no one wanted to touch it. So it comes right. to that. And the second very quick point I want to make it is, of course, that the Qataris have never shied away from posting political Islam. Right? That is something that uh, that was, again, a big thorn between the UAE and Qatar. The UAE wanted them to dispel people like Hamas. They wanted to dispel people like um, you know, Muslim Brotherhood, uh, which they have done at a certain level, but also not done at a certain level. I just want to bring you back to my second question. Now, what do we have in common with the group in which many of its members are ISI trained, especially the Haqqani group? Look, there's nothing common. I mean, let's be honest. Why did India pack up uh, Kabul so quickly diplomatically was because the Haqqanis were given the keys to the to, to the city. You know, the Haqqanis were responsible for the security of the city. And we know what the background of the Haqqanis are. I mean, they are largely yeah. supported by the, by the Pakistani establishment. And it made sort of sense from that perspective that, you know, you get your assets out as quickly as possible. I do not particularly support that notion. I do think they should have maintained... A residual diplomatic presence but that was the main reason but as far as the taliban outreach is concerned i think there was there was a two-pronged strategy to that first was of course you deal with doha through the official processes and there's nothing wrong in that because the entire world was dealing through it small countries from austria to large countries from china were in contact with the taliban due through the doha process and the other is of course you reach out to the commanders on the ground you reach out to the people on the ground you reach out to the shuras and it was it's always much easier to do it via Doha because it's done publicly. But what happened behind the doors if and when they tried to do it directly with the Taliban is still not known. I know that they did try to, you know, raise their old contacts from the Kandahar era when it comes to the Taliban to try and reach out to the new dispensation within the Taliban. But a lot has changed within the Taliban itself. So there are these two, I think, ways they may have approached the Taliban. And look, even if it's, we know the Taliban is supported by the Pakistanis and the ISI. But like I just cited the Kabul example, that really is cannot be an exclusivity uh, answer of why you don't engage with them. 
because you've done so in the past. That's true. So, Kabir, there's so much more we have to discuss, but unfortunately, time constraints ensure we'll have to leave it there. I'm sure there will be much more developments, especially as far as Afghanistan and West Asia is concerned. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and thank you everyone for listening. Please do follow us on Strat News Global and support quality journalism. And I'm Ashwin Ahmed. Thank you and goodbye.